as uh, Steve was reading that passage in John chapter 10 about the shepherd and the sheep, I always thought it interesting that uh, the shepherd, as Jesus is saying, lays down his life for his sheep. And I'm thinking, well, that sounds like a great idea, but then what do the sheep do? It, it has to be followed by a resurrection. And he does say that later in the passage. I lay down my life and I take it back up again. But if you just read the first part of that, you'd say, wait a minute. If he lays down his life for his sheep, what else do they have? But we as believers know that when he said he laid down his life for us, we have everything. We have everything. There's two simple words that I'm just going to set before you and uh, show you from Scripture what our focus is here tonight. It's the words, for you. Two words that the difference between death and life for you and it's so often said in scripture and it's especially said in the presentation of what we call the communion service as Jesus described uh, the body being broken and the bread form of the bread and the cup he just kept commenting for you for you that always stops me in my tracks when I read those two words. Jesus is in the upper room. It's an evening just before his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. If you study through books like the book of John, you'll find that uh, just alone that would have been an exhausting evening to have had a meal, then to walk out to the garden, to spend time in prayer, and we know how Luke described his prayer. He was sweating blood to be arrested. Jesus knew all that was coming. To be taken into a trial that was illegal, by the way, but marched back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and Pilate again all through the night, and then they beat him. And that wasn't because he was guilty. They beat him because he was innocent. And that usually is supposed to change the heart of the accusers. But it only led to more. And their demand that he be crucified. It's a stunning account. It's a stunning account to to listen to it and watch and see what's happening. Would you turn with me just to the book of Luke here for starters? Uh, tonight, Luke chapter 22. I'm going to take you into the upper room for a few minutes here this evening, starting around verse number 7 of Luke 22. Now, I find it very interesting that comparing the four gospel accounts of this meal in the upper room, Luke doesn't give a whole lot of dialogue at the start. Matter of fact, most of the other gospel accounts have a lot of dialogue before they get to this point that Luke starts with. But Luke then adds more to the end of the time. But his, his account is kind of short and right to the point. In verse number 7, 
Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he, that's Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Now, as I told you, Luke does not record everything that has happened in the upper room to this point. He did not include the washing of the disciples' feet. John does that. He doesn't include the long dialogue that John does from chapter 13 through almost through chapter 16. He's talking a great deal with them, including the passage in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And the issues that were going on in their hearts as they were listening to him. John Luke does not record all these things, but he does focus immediately on the death of Christ. And watch the words now as we follow on in verse 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. There's those two words. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, The cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood for you. Thinking about that, especially as I, I remember my days as a student at Moody Bible Institute, and that was quite some time ago now. But we we had a lot of talks, yeah, theology. We talked there there too. But what concerned us a lot was how do you designate yourself theologically? Everyone wore titles, you know, I'm a this, I'm a that, whatever. And Moody was kind of a, a melting pot of some sorts. Uh, there were a lot of denominations, a lot of independent people, and things like that all together. So designating ourselves theologically was always an interesting dialogue. There's 30 guys on one floor, and we had nothing else to do sometimes except homework, and we didn't want to do it. So we just sat around and talked about some of the craziest things you've ever heard. Uh, like, can God make a rock big enough he can't move it? 
I don't know why we always went to that one. It was just too much pizza and Pepsi, I'm sure. But uh, we, we talked about all kinds of theological things up there. Most of them weren't even worth talking about at all. But I do recall that many of the professors that I had at Moody were graduates of Dallas Theological Seminary from some 50 years ago. These are the guys that write books and things, and like the one he shared with you here tonight, Shaper's Theology. Um, these, were the, these were the men who taught us. And when we asked them where they stood theologically, they would say to us that they were four and a half pointers. Four and a half pointers. I said, what's that? When you're new to that whole world, you say, what is a four and a halfer? Uh, and so they'd say, well, it's like this. Are there not five points in Calvinism? i say, yeah. And we're taught that each letter of those five points spell out a flower, which is what? The tulip. Yes, yeah, so we had homework, and we had to memorize some things like that. Total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. Irresistible grace. Perseverance of the saints. Spells tulip. Sometimes they have different words now. You might have noticed that. That was the way we were taught. But the four and a half, and you say, okay, which one is having problems here? Yeah, it's the middle one. The limited atonement position. They give that one the half. Atonement, yes. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is our atonement. He paid his, his life for us. We know that. But limited? What does that mean? Well, we were taught it meant that he, Jesus only died for those who would be saved. That's its limitations. The death of Christ only met those who would be saved. And we had to think that through and say, how does that work exactly? Uh, what is unlimited atonement? Because that's what we were taught. Jesus' death on the cross and God's love for the world is for who? The elect? Everybody? The whole world? You see where we go with this? We start spinning in circles. We say, how do we work about... Did, did Jesus die for everyone? Does God's love cover the world? The argument for a limited atonement is under the basis that not one drop of Jesus' blood is wasted. That's the primary argument. Not one drop of Jesus' blood is to be wasted at all. And so his blood is not for the one who would not be saved, but only for the saved. That would make sense on one side, except the blood has much more value to it than just salvation. Do you know that? The blood has much more to it than just that. We know it was a price paid for sin, but it also was the price that justified the satisfaction of God's wrath poured out upon His Son. 
it satisfies God's demand for the wages of sin. Even, I would say, and this isn't real realistic, but I would say it this way, even if one person ever came to faith in Christ, his blood still would have satisfied the Father for the wrath that he had to level against his Son. It was more than just our salvation that that atonement was for. That's why I sometimes think it all depends on which side you're looking from. If you're standing up in God's view, looking down, and since He knows everything, I guess you could say it's going to apply to just those who are saved. But for those of us who are called to go out into all the world, what are we going to tell them? Well, I hope you're included in the group. I'm going to share the gospel with you. But if you're not, sorry. Is that what he told us to do? No. He told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So as far as we stand down here, we cannot call it limited to only the saved. Because his blood, his death was for everyone. And here's the one distinction I need to make it so you understand. It isn't that the blood is unavailable to some or to any. It is that some do not avail themselves to it. No one will ever stand before the throne of God and say, it wasn't fair, Jesus didn't die for me. No one could ever say that. Is there an atonement? Yes. I thank the Lord for it. I thank the Lord for it. It says in John, 1 John 2 verse 3, no, 2 verse 2, He Himself is the propitiation. That's a big word, isn't it? Propitiation. The atoning sacrifice. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's an incredible reach for that blood. Incredible. What's the big deal of all this tonight? Why, why am I, I talking about this? Because here we are proclaiming the death of Christ in our communion service, on our Good Friday service. And when I say for you, what does that mean? For you. What Jesus said that night to his disciples, I'm sure they took it very personally, wouldn't you? If they were following and understood, but you know they were terribly distracted. But when he said for you... Was he not looking at them when he said it? And in the same way he took the cup, and after he had, they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. And don't you think he was looking at them? For you. And then the gospel message that we proclaim is the same to the whole world. We don't alter it. We don't go in and say, well, this is for some and not for others. 
We can say that Jesus died for you. To everybody in this room, can't we? We can say Jesus died for you to every single person in Hillsdale, can't we? We can say Jesus died for you to every person in the state of Oklahoma, can't we? Can we do the same for the whole world? Yes, we can. We can walk anywhere with this proclamation. It was for you. It's the same thing for you, for me, for the disciples, for the folks in Jerusalem, for the folks in Asia Minor, folks all the way through the years. For you. And yet you know it's a very personal thing too. When you hear those two words, it comes right back at you, doesn't it? For you. For you personally. For you. For me. Individually. Jesus died. It stuns me to think that his sacrifice was for my sin. That stuns me to think about that. It hurts me to think that he died Because of what I had done. My disobedience. My bad attitude. The things that I should have done and didn't do. The things that I shouldn't have done and I did. He was punished for me. He died for me. I wince when I think that those nails... And that beating, and that crown of thorn, and that spear in his side, is really what I deserved. And he took my place. There's a song I I have loved for years and years since I was young. I've sung it here before, I believe, but I'm not singing it tonight. The words were simply, I was guilty with nothing to say. And they were coming to take me away. But then a voice from heaven was heard that said, let him go, take me instead. And I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on that cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's Son, took my place. That's the fascinating and yet the most hurtful thing in my heart. That he should do that for me. Or that I should do that to him. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You go over to chapter number 1 with me for a minute here. Work your way to verse 17. He's writing to a group of people. That I think the average pastor would have resigned and gone to a better place. This church was a mess. It is a mess from page one to the last chapter of this letter. It's a mess. And Paul's writing to them. And if you get down into the depths of the letter, you just feel rotten. It's like, wow, are they really that bad? Yes. You know what this book also has? It has the record of the communion service in it. Perhaps the very first time it was ever recorded in print. 
it's quite possible that this book was written before the Gospels were written. But Paul's writing to these Corinthians, and he says in chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I never want my words to get in the way of seeing the cross of Christ. May our words never, our worship never, our songs never block our view of our Savior. He says, I don't want to be so clever that people can't see my Savior's cross. I, folks, am nothing without a cross. We're nothing without a cross. What Jesus did for us there has changed us so completely And we know that the message we proclaim is not about us, is it? It's not about us. It's about Jesus and about his death on the cross. And verse number 18, he says, But the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the Wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God this world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Our goal is not to enhance the cross of Christ. As if we ever could. We just proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we've been told to do. Consider what it means then for Jesus to say, for you. Consider what that means. I'm going to take you to two lengthy passages here. The first one's in Psalm 22. And let's go there first. I'm going to read that chapter to you. And then we're going to go to Isaiah 53. And we're going to read that chapter too. Psalm 22. The Psalm of David. You're going to obviously hear things in this psalm that you've heard on a cross before. David couldn't possibly be writing solely about himself. Not the words that you're going to see. As you look carefully at these words, you're going to see Jesus on his cross. It's written about a thousand years before Jesus ever went there. Nine to, 900 to a thousand years. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day 
and you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, "Commit yourselves to commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver him. Let Him rescue him, because He delights in him." Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Did you just notice a change in the whole tone? Before he's talking about what's going on, and now he's talking about his future. He knows he's dying, but he's looking beyond the death. There's a clear picture coming your way. He has to rise again. Watch the words as they come. You who fear the... No, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him, all you descendants of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor is He hidden His face from men. But when He cried to Him for help, He heard. For you... From you comes my praise in this great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. 
All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to dust will bow before him, even those who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. What an incredible psalm that is. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Without a doubt, he did this for us. Isaiah begins by writing, and Isaiah was sent to a group of people that the Lord said, oh, they're not going to listen to you. That's really encouraging to go out on that job. But he went, and he says in verse 1, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And like one with whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely, our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, as if he deserved it. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, 
will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I don't know if there's another chapter in Scripture that's more stunning than that. Especially when I keep seeing that personal pronoun pop up there. Our sins. Our sins. When Jesus had presented the bread and the cup, and he said, this body will be broken for you. This blood will be shed for you. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was dying for us. For you and for me. It was for us. There's no better time at all to ever bring this point to the surface. Do you recognize that Jesus did die for you? Do you recognize that? I mean, it's not just something that we mark in history or mark as a calendar event, but do you know that personally? Jesus died for you? For you? Do you know that He is a Savior from sin? Do you know that He can and He will save you from the penalty of your sin too? Do you know that? Do you know it's a gift of God's grace that's extended to you in the death of Jesus Christ? There's no fancy words here. It's just what God has said. Jesus Christ is a Savior from sin. The only question here is, is He your Savior for sin? Yours. He died for who? You. He died for you. Romans 5 says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, that's us, Christ died for us. For us. He died for us. I've told you in my testimony before that that verse changed my life. It stunned me the first time I understood it. And I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. All those years before, I thought I was the captain of my own salvation. I was the one that brought it about. I was the one that made it happen. And it was up to me to keep it or up to me to get rid of it. I had an awful lot of I in my gospel. And I was sitting there in a Romans class, and the professor was as monotonous, dry as you could make it. And he's just reading along. And my soul was captivated by God's word. I never knew in the first three chapters how bad I was. As he kept reading that, I felt worse and worse. 
And this was over a course of weeks he kept in those passages. And I just wanted to crawl underneath the desk and through a crack in the floor or get out of there somehow. But I knew the Lord was speaking right to my heart. And he was showing me how bad I was. Wages of sin is death, he'd say. We are all guilty of sin and we're all worthy of death. And Oh, it just went on and on. And honestly, folks, I'd heard things about the gospel all the way up until that day. But that's when I started to understand, without Jesus, I'm hopeless. And I felt that way. I, I felt stunned. I felt defeated. I felt deflated. I felt everything that those chapters had me want to, wanted me to know. And I sat there in that chair thinking, where is the hope for this? Where is the hope? And he got to chapter 5. Verse 8. While I was yet a sinner, and boy did I know what I was, Christ died for me, and God loves me. Wow, did that hit me. I could have screamed right there, but that wasn't allowed in class. Just amazing to read that verse. He died for me. He loves me. I was a sinner. Can you, can you believe this great news? It's right there on the page. It's right there in front of you. Jesus died for you personally. He died for you. You. You can come to know the greatest sacrifice is also the greatest gift ever given. You can know that. Jesus died for you. When you believe that, Scripture says, you have everlasting life. There's so much more that can be said, obviously. But what is more important than these questions right now? Do you believe that Jesus died for you personally? Have you received the gift the Father has made available to you? Maybe there's somebody here even tonight who doesn't know Christ as Savior and suddenly you see what I saw <laughs> back to that classroom realizing Jesus died for me. You can talk to the Lord right now. You can pray to Him right now about that. Or maybe you're sitting there saying, but I, I, I want somebody to pray with me. Do you know there's about, uh, almost everybody in this room would jump up and do it. If you should say, would somebody pray with me right now? Because that's what we want you to receive. If you've never received Christ as Savior, do it tonight. Understand, it's for you. It's a gift given to you right now. And we would love for you to do that. If you're a believer, you rejoice in these things, don't you? You rejoice in this truth. When you read across the front in remembrance of me, and you take of this bread, and you take of this cup, you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done for me. See, that's what a communion service is for. It's a remembrance to us. As if we need it. We must. For he told us to do it often. 
but it's a reminder to us, us who know him, who have received his eternal life, that this is a remembrance for us of what Jesus did for you and for me. And we take the time to do this. And we're going to keep doing it until he comes. Because that's the message that we've been given. Nothing fancy, nothing glossy, nothing, you know, clever in any single way. It's just so beautiful. It stands all by itself. Jesus died for you. He gave his body and he gave his blood. We're going to remember that right now. I'm going to have the elders come forward and assist me here with our communion service tonight.